Let Me Tell You a Story, Podcast 22. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We're changing it up again and randomizing this podcast. We're going to have some nonfiction as well as some fiction have some fun poetry, some serious poetry, and we're going to have a guest reader all the way from Texas, Mary DeMuth, who is a multi-published author and a busy speaker who loves to help people live uncaged lives. I'm going to start with poems by Eugene Shea and Tony Ranella. From Eugene Shea, It's called Return of the Native. I should probably intro this by saying Eugene, or Gene as he goes by, uh, is a Wyoming, uh, he loves Wyoming, and that's where he lives now. And you can kind of hear that in this and in his other writings. Return of the Native, land of my birth, best place on earth, the land so near the moon. Oh, mother of the land I love, I'll be in Wyoming soon. For none so fair that can compare, though far afield I roam, O magic land of the mountain brand, your son will soon come home. O motherland of the mountain man under heaven's azure dome, when they turn the key and set me free, yes, warden, I'll go home. This one is by Tony Ranella. I am not a cowboy. Staying with Wyoming here, aren't we, or the West? I am a horseman, not a cowboy. I have never worked a ranch. Packing horses through the mountains, that's the love that I romance. The dreams of living long ago have a way of coming true when you're climbing over deadfalls and your horse just threw a shoe. Tent stove and lanterns were left back at the house. We're packing just essentials and a shotgun for some grouse. Panniers all are balanced. The load is hanging right. The mantee covers everything and the diamond hitch is tight. Chuck and equipment lists have carefully been checked twice. Leathers are oiled. Reps are all crown spliced. Maps, canteen, and compass are are hanging on the horn. As you start the pack string toward those snowy peaks, you're thanking God that you were born. That by Tony Ranella. Reading from her new book, co-authored with Frank Viola, entitled The Day I Met Jesus, here's Mary DeMuth. 2. Diary of a Prostitute Who Loved Much I have learned something powerful and simple. There is a love that transcends worthlessness and the sinful deeds done in darkness— This is what I shout now, and I am forever changed in light of that love. Yet love's opposite, lust, wielded its terrible power over me for too many years. Men had two faces toward me. 
When others, particularly their wives, were not looking, their eyes held lust. When onlookers surrounded them, they carried disgust. I know both looks well. Lust and disgust. They had become my companions many years on the street. If I allowed them to permeate my heart, I would feel like dying nearly every moment. But I had to continue on. The lust of men had no end, and it paid me well if you want to know the stark truth. Would you laugh if I told you my dreams as a little girl? Would you poke fun at my ambitions? What I wanted was so desperately simple. A home, a husband, a passel of children. One night changed all that. The air was warm, scented sweet by opening blossoms. Spring intoxicated me at fifteen, enticing me to walk outside in the cool evening so I could think, away from the constant bickering of my siblings. On the ridge above my village I felt invincible, as if I could command the moon and tell the stars to dance. I sat on a large boulder that night and let out the breath I had been holding all day long. Ah, sweet shalom, just me and the rising moon in a circle of rare quiet. I was accustomed to telling God about everything he already knew. I wondered if I bothered the Almighty by prattling on. But then I reasoned if I had children, I would stare rapt at them, the miracle of who they were, and long to hear their dreams and wonderings. So perhaps God sat rapt in the heavens as I declared my frustration, detailed my future, and told him of the petty frustrations of my day. I would like to know what you have for me next, I said to the breeze, will my husband have workman hands? Will he be taller than me? Will he love me? A bird answered back, but nothing more. And then, a rustle. From the corner of my vision, I saw a man. He strode toward me in sandaled feet, earthen-colored cloak. He wore a beard and a bemused look. Seeking a husband, I hear? The man's tone hinted at domination, not invitation. I turned inward, searching to find the words to get me out of this situation. But he reached for me, grabbed my arm, and clenched my flesh in his strong hand. He ripped hair from its roots until my eyes screamed tears. What I would not give for one of my brothers to find me, to rescue me. But no such rescue came. I watched the moon, concentrated on the stars, begged the heavens to come down upon us but the sky did not fall for me. The man sneered when he stood up, tall, looming. The moon haloed his head while I wept. In his hand, he held a fistful of hair. You will not tell a soul, he said. I kill those who tell. And I believed him. I limped back home in the dead of night, from the place of my undoing to the place I would exile myself from. I wondered if my parents or brothers or sisters had searched for me. But since they knew my habits of wandering in the evenings, I hoped that perhaps they forgot about me and would be drunk with sleep when I returned. I tiptoed around their sleeping forms, carefully gathering my things. I refused to bring shame upon this house. There were no secrets in this village. Like hidden sin, they bubble to the surface every time. Someday, the dawn of daylight would expose this secret for all its ugly shame. Because of one man's act, I would be rendered a harlot, certainly not a virgin who could be given in marriage. 
Every single dream collapsed as I paused to watch my family sleep. I would never have this oasis of calm, never hear the snoring of my husband, the sighing of my firstborn, the tossing and turning of my thirdborn. I traveled far away from my village, then found someone to shave my head. There I mourned my patchy skull. But even more than that, I lamented with sackcloth and ashes the life I would never experience. I subsisted on the outskirts of benevolent farmers' fields, gleaning like Ruth, barely eating, scarcely surviving. As my hair grew back, I noticed that look of lust in the eyes of several men in the village. I knew now I was a washed-out rag, good for nothing but to glean and long for food. But I might as well eat. I might as well have some sort of home. So I exchanged my already used body for money. The first time felt like agony, but I kept my tears bottled inside. The second time I gritted my teeth. The third time I closed my eyes, trying to imagine the moon, the stars, only to remember that night and shudder inside myself. The fourth time I made a choice. I accepted my lot, the reason perhaps that God placed me on this earth. I would have to choose a different dream now, to satisfy the hunger of many men, not one, and be paid for my work handsomely. From that point onward, I deadened my heart. I pretended I never wanted a family, believed I was meant for something else, a service men needed, I reasoned. I play-acted my way through each encounter, feigning interest, alluring with my eyes, though I saw revulsion in theirs. I never kissed those men, never gave them my soul, my heart. When a religious leader curried my services, I dared to say the words that merited a firm slap. We are not unlike each other, I told him. You pretend to be religiously pious, but instead pay a prostitute to quell your urges. I pretend to be interested in you, but instead I count the money you will give me. You want power through your position. I have power because of mine. I held sway over many, many men, a strange sort of payback I enjoyed. I could, with one word, cut down a reputation so painstakingly built. Yes, this power I relished. The dance of prostitution continued many years. I made my money, created a home for myself with fine linens, food for a queen, and perfumes that scented my bedding. I found it to be a fitting joke now, the way men judged me publicly yet wanted me privately. I coddled the power of my position and convinced myself I did have the life I always dreamed of. Except as I grew older by the years, I would no longer be considered pretty. My livelihood hung in a terrible balance, threatened by age and the toll this life took upon my weathered face. My only insurance, the vial of wildly expensive perfume that hung between my breasts. Some nights after I completed my work, I would climb the ridge beyond our village, stare at the same moon and stars, and be fifteen years young and blessedly unviolated, full of dreams of family, of joyful life, of a clean heart. I gave these terrible wishes to the wind on those evenings, with an ache that grew deeper than my comfortable life. I would never, ever be whole, never clean, never pure, never accepted, certainly never forgiven.
The tears would come slowly in those moments, and I would try not to give in to weeping. And then I would think, why not start over? Who says I cannot? I would pack up my house and transport myself to another village, only to be dissatisfied with gleaning. Men would find me. They would know whether I possessed powers over them, or perhaps they had heard rumors from other villages. I am not quite sure. But they dazzled me with denarii, and I relieved their urgent needs. I moved to Nain several Sabbaths ago, in hopes of a new start, naively perhaps. The money I saved from the last village kept me in food and clothing. I survived without giving my body in service, and I refrained from dipping into my perfume, keeping a modest lifestyle. My head began to clear. Perhaps, I thought, I could make my way without selling my body. But the mornings brought hunger. Would I have to sell the perfume for food, for livelihood? It represented all the tears I would not allow myself to cry, enslaved at the hands of hungry men. I ventured to the central part of Nain in search of figs, coins gripped tightly in my left hand. My stomach rumbled. In the market, the kindly old man known as Elkana greeted me, eyes dancing. And how are you today, ma'am? Part of me wanted to tell him just how tired I was, how desperately hungry I felt, but instead I answered, all is well, all is well. He handed me four figs and winked. I can only pay you for three. Consider it my tithe, he said. You need to eat more, and I cannot be the reason your bones jut from your cheeks. I wanted to hug him, but I kept my distance, telling myself not to tear up at his kindness. I wondered if he knew my secret prostitution and was only being nice to me for this sake. You know what I have heard. He touched my arm. I jerked backwards. He knew? He lifted his hands heavenward in surrender. I am sorry, he said. I did not mean to startle. I am new here, I told Elkana, and I do not know who to trust. He laughed. I am harmless and quite withered. He showed me his right hand curled inward, gnarled by life and crippling disease. I have heard of a man who heals hands like mine. He seems to love outcasts, those our little society shuns, and he is near. He looked through me in that moment, and I turned away. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, the exorciser, the healer. Some say he is the Messiah. When he said the name Jesus, my heart leapt, but I said nothing. I believe he can heal this hand. Elkanah grabbed my attention, looking into my eyes, and any manner of broken heart. Impossible, I thought. Too many men, too many transactions, too much disease and weariness. I thanked the kind man and made my way toward my home. On the left, a crowd formed, dust twirling beneath shuffling feet. In the midst of this crowd stood a man, in sandals, in an earthen cloak. At first I recoiled, remembering the night so many years before. Was he the same? Another man hiding despicable deeds beneath eloquent speech? I heard a voice from the crowd say, Tell us more, Jesus. Jesus, the one who mended broken hearts. 
I skirted along the side of the crowd as I am used to doing and listened to his words. To what can I compare the people of this generation? How can I describe them? They are like children playing a game in the public square. They complained to their friends, we played wedding songs and you did not dance, so we played funeral songs and you did not weep. What did Jesus mean? Perhaps he spoke about expectations unmet, or not reacting as we should in the proper context. Was I like one of those children, playing wedding and funeral songs, hoping for a perfect reaction? The muffle of voices gave way to the words of Jesus again. For John the Baptist did not spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he is possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. I had heard of this John who baptized, to some a wild man, to others a saint. To the religious men I have known he was the former, to the working men the latter. But it was the name of Jesus that stopped me, the thought of him befriending tax collectors and other sinners. Why would a man of God befriend a tax collector? If this were true, would I qualify as other sinners? The reputation of tax collectors far exceeded that of a prostitute. At least we provided a service for money freely given, not stolen. If this Jesus could befriend thieves, would he be my friend too? And could he forgive all I had done? Thank you, Mary, for contributing to Let Me Tell You a Story. You can learn more about Mary and find her books, including The Day I Met Jesus, on her website, Mary Demuth, M-A-R-Y-D-E-M-U-T-H dot com. I'm going to read a chapter from Becky's book On a Wing and a Prayer, one of her two nonfiction books. And uh, this is by Sean, an ex-inmate. The title is, It Doesn't Get Any Better Than This. My mom began taking me and my brother to church in Loveland when I was in the fifth grade. That's when I accepted Christ into my life. As a teenager, I was involved with my youth group and in plays at church. Then I stopped going to church and started smoking pot, hanging out with a, with a different crowd. I was a very business-minded individual, even in high school, so... It didn't take me long to see the advantage of selling marijuana. There was a big ring of us, nine guys all together, who got busted for selling dope on campus when I was a junior. Because I was a juvenile, all they could do was give me probation and make me read books and give book reports. That punishment didn't faze me. I continued to smoke and sell pot and party. I had plenty of money and a nice car. Despite all the trouble I got into, my parents stuck with me through thick and thin. I thank God my mom was a prayer warrior. I really put her and dad through the ringer. Just one example. After high school, they took me on a trip to New Orleans, which is called the Big Easy on the streets. Whoever named it that wasn't kidding. The first night there, I dealt dope in a neighborhood that looked like something out of a movie. It was a total projects area, even had cars up on blocks. I was the only white guy. I sold some crack and some dope, and I bought some dope. 
The next day, I went back to the same spot and was doing a deal on a back alley when a black Ford Taurus came roaring up beside us. The Taurus jerked to a halt as two big black guys with medallions bouncing on their chests jumped out. I took off booking across a four-lane highway and ran right in front of a car, which barely missed me. It wasn't long before I began to tire and slow down. The men were catching up to me, so I stopped and ducked, expecting them to fly past me. Then I planned to double back and escape. Instead, 300 pounds of muscle ground me into the dirt. The guy grabbed my neck, jerked me up, and slammed me against the wall with one hand. With the other, he shoved a Mac-10 against my head. Thinking I had swallowed some crack, he kept screaming in my face, Spit it out! Spit it out! There was a guy across the street painting a church. I can remember him yelling, Someone call a cops! They're robbing him! Just then, the Taurus screeched to a stop beside us, and the other cop hurtled out, hollering, We are cops! Within moments, I was on my way to jail. All the way there, I kept thinking, I'm only 17, they can't touch me. I'm a minor. I was soon to learn, however, that a 17-year-old is considered an adult in New Orleans. It was probably 110 degrees in that jail, and it smelled really bad. The only item on the menu was grits. I had to to talk a trustee into bringing me some canned peaches just to have something familiar to eat. Although I was incarcerated in New Orleans for only 24 hours, I remember every single moment with clarity. I was the only white guy in the entire jail, but the other inmates liked me because I could tell stories. One guy who looked like Mike Tyson, even the tooth, wanted to be my friend and give me pointers. Man, he said, you went over to those Fifth Ward projects? I don't even go there. I called the hotel and asked the desk clerk to tell my parents I was in jail. I remember how bad I felt when I walked into the courtroom and saw my mom and dad sitting there looking so distraught. Since my bond was set at $300,000, they had to hire a lawyer who got me out on a $13,000 bond. After high school, I started a landscaping business, which I operated for a year. I also began using and selling cocaine. When my girlfriend decided to go to college in Phoenix, I sold the business and went with her to school. I thought it would be a good place for me to start over, to regroup. Phoenix is a border town. A lot of drugs go through there. Within a week, I discovered that my next-door neighbor was a big dope dealer. I partnered with another guy, and together we sold massive amounts of marijuana. Plus, we used and sold methamphetamine. I quit going to school. The only real job I ever worked in Phoenix lasted two weeks. My relationship with my girlfriend, whom I had dated all through high school, turned sour. I found myself in some pretty scary scenarios in Phoenix. I had guns pointed at my head more than once. I have a dual scar on my chin from the time I was jumped by nine guys and kicked in the chin. They took my dope, but I managed to hang on to the $3,000 I had in my hand. About a month later, my chin was split again when I got into another fight. One morning around 3 a.m., I heard a knock on the door. When I went to answer it, I thought, oh, I forgot my gun. So I walked over to the coffee table, picked up the gun, and opened the door. All the while, I was thinking, What am I doing? This is crazy. I would never need a gun in Loveland. Shortly after that incident, due to a deal that went bad with some white nation bikers, I moved to San Diego. Within a couple days, I was hustling dope in that city. Then I went to live with a buddy in Sacramento. 
I tried to get a job there, and I tried to be straight, but I didn't like Sacramento. So I moved back to Loveland, where one of my old buddies was dealing drugs on a very large scale with a guy who was importing dope from Mexico. It didn't take long for the cops to figure out what I was up to. By then, I was more into partying and using dope than selling it, but I still sold some. I lived in motel rooms, a different motel room, every night to avoid the cops. Almost every night, I had people in my room partying all night long. At one motel, I got into a fight with someone who owed me for a cocaine deal. I wasn't a big drinker, but I happened to be pretty drunk that night and caused enough of a ruckus that the cops were called. I ended up in Larimer County Detention Center for two weeks for possession of cocaine. While I was in jail, God used the jail chaplain, Donna Roth, to remind me of my relationship with him. I started praying again. Lord, I said, get me out of this mess and I won't do drugs again. I was able to pay my bail and bond out of jail within two weeks. God kept his end of the deal, but I figured I deserved to celebrate, so that's what I did. Three months later, I sold a friend a large amount of marijuana. When I thought he would be ready for more, I called him. Hey, you ready for another supply? I don't have enough money. So what'd you do with all your marijuana? I smoked some and gave some away. That's strange, I thought. I sold you a lot of marijuana. You should have had plenty to smoke and to sell. From then on, he kept trying to introduce me to his friend. But I kept saying, I don't want to know your friend. I know enough people as it is. If your friend wants dope, he can go to you. You can come to me. I didn't realize it, but the friend was an undercover cop. Three months later, he called again. Hey, our friend is out of town. Can you set me up with some meth? I said, okay. And we arranged a meeting place. The cops were with him, but they did not detain me. They just put out a warrant for my arrest. It wasn't long before I was picked up. When my bondsman called me in jail, he said, What did you do? You have nine felony charges. They're not even issuing a bond. No amount of money will get you out right now. Finally, a bond was set, but it was huge. I slowly accepted the fact that jail was to be my residence for a while. Because I was smart-mouthed, I was a smart-mouthed punk, I was locked down often, spending 23 hours a day in my cell. My cellmate's pastor visited him and gave him a New Testament. I started reading it. I remember reading the parables and reading about Jesus. When I was no longer locked down, I joined a group of guys who had a daily Bible study within our pod. I happened to know what they were talking about because I had just read it in my cellmate's Bible. So I shared insights and questions I had about the passage. They were shocked. I was the last person they thought would know anything about the Bible. I went to every church service offered in the jail. That's how I got to know Pastor Dave. Something in him struck a tone within me, and vice versa. He used to come in on his own time just to get to know me better. I rededicated my life to Christ, asking him to transform me and renew me and make me like him. After LCDC, I was sent to the halfway house for six months and started going to Northgate Church on the Rock because I knew Pastor Dave. I was even asked to be an usher. But six months in the halfway house weighs on a person when there are 65 other residents who aren't interested in godly things. I started pushing the limits again, going out on Friday nights with old friends and drinking, just being an idiot. It wasn't long before I ran into a friend from jail who sold me a whole bunch of coke. To make a long story short, 
I regressed, which was devastating to me. I knew the truth. I had experienced the glory of God. I ended up back in jail. That was hard. I'm not normally an emotional person, but I was that week. I remember being on my knees, praying and crying, Lord, I know I screwed up. I don't know what you're going to do with me here, but I do know your word says you work all things for your good. I spent most of my time reading the Bible and praying. I miss that time now. I was able to pray three hours a day and spend the rest of the day reading the Bible and getting filled up with God's word. This time I wasn't a smart-mouthed punk. I was made a trustee due to good behavior and moved over to the minimum security unit. That was nice. I got involved with Freedom Fellowship and the other church services and just kept growing spiritually. God began to reveal to me my gift of teaching the Word. I started leading some of the Bible studies within the pods. One night, God gave me a message for the Bible study with an awesome theme associated with the beer commercial that says, It doesn't get any better than this. Normally, five or six guys attend in the group, but by the end of the message, there must have been 30 guys standing around listening. I just praised God. Then I was sent to the Colorado Department of Corrections, where I was in a cell with a crip, a gangbanger from Denver. Each night, the guards would throw plastic bags under the doors of those people who were getting shipped out the next day. That meant, you're moving on, so pack your bags. Neither of us were getting bags. I prayed about it and felt the Lord telling me, you guys aren't getting bags until one of you gets saved. I knew I was already saved, so I led this crip, this guy who had been involved in drive-by shootings, to the Lord. Soon I was moved to the territorial prison, a very old prison that must have been built in the late 1800s. I was there for a couple of months, waiting to go into the boot camp program. Under God's leading, I organized a small Bible study at that prison and did a lot of witnessing. Boot camp turned out to be the hardest thing I ever had to do, physically and emotionally. They're not joking at boot camp. The program is so intense, judges reconsider the sentences sentences of those who graduate. The first week is called Hell Week, and it's pretty darn close to that. There was some weeping and gnashing of teeth going on, for sure. The leaders lighten up later, but the plan the first month is to break people down. The plan the first week is to break them down fast. It's intentionally strenuous and emotionally difficult. I couldn't sleep the first night. Over and over, I asked myself the same questions. What did I do? Why did I choose boot camp? Why am I here? How can I do this? The next night, I was fast asleep as soon as I hit the bunk. But I was awakened all too soon by revelry, along with sound of trash cans, uh, can lids banging near my ears. Despite the trauma, boot camp was an awesome time in my life. It taught me discipline. It taught me teamwork. I had opportunities to witness to so many guys there. They got to see Christ in me. Boot camp brings a whole bunch of different people together. Gangbangers, thieves, alcoholics, druggies, you name it. And forces them to work as a team. You can imagine the conflicts that arose. I thank God I was able to set a godly example in the midst of the bickering and fighting. One gangbanger even noticed I was never involved in the quarrels within the platoon. Graduation was great. The first time in my life I'd ever accomplished anything positive. I'd been kicked out of high school the last day of my senior year for being stoned, so I didn't graduate with my class, although I got a diploma. It felt good to graduate from boot camp. The whole time I was at the camp, I prayed I would get intensive, supervised probation with an ankle monitor, 
when I told people what I was praying for, they said, Sean, you're crazy if you think you're not going to get sent back to the halfway house. But two months after graduation, I was put on ISP. The judge said I needed to be on ISP for a year. In three months, however, I was off ISP and on regular probation. My resentencing was for five years adult probation. Praise God, it's been three years now, and I'm on the most minimal probation. After I was released, I attended Front Range Community College for two years. The turnaround in my life was amazing. I received the Dean's Scholarship for maintaining a 3.8 grade point average the first year. The second year, I had a 3.4 GPA and received the Colorado Scholars Scholarship. I also started helping with the college ministry at church. After a while, the Lord told me, Someday you will lead this ministry. I said, Wow, Lord, that's awesome. About three months passed. One night before I went to bed, I prayed, Lord, I know you told me it's going to be my ministry. Give me the patience to wait, or if someone needs to make a move, so be it. Within a week, the leader told me he was ready to step down, and I was given the college director position. The college ministry is a blessing to me. I enjoy spending time with people. I've learned to love individuals and understand where they've been. Lately, I've been hanging out with a guy who lives at the halfway house. I know where he's at in life. I can relate to his circumstances and encourage him. My life is the exact opposite of what it used to be. I didn't work when I was a dealer. Now I work a full-time job. I used to carry guns and sell dope. Now I lead the college ministry at church. I used to live for myself and party all the time. Now I'm married and share life with my beautiful wife, Sarah. You couldn't pay me all the money in the world to go back to the lifestyle I lived in my past. My past, uh, my life was empty. I was always searching for something, but I didn't know what it was. I was never satisfied. When I began to develop my relationship with God, I experienced a peace I had never had before. There was a new level of truth and completeness in my life. In my drug days, even if I smoked the best marijuana in the world, I didn't attain peace. Peace is a huge thing for me because there is no peace for a hustler. Life passed me by. I was always in a hurry, always late, always worried, always watching my back. Now I enjoy life and make the most of each day. I enjoy the miracle of my own life. I enjoy the life I see in other people. I enjoy knowing every individual is a creation of God, and I enjoy being able to love others because of that knowledge. I once lived in bondage and deception, but now I live in truth and love. A couple of podcasts ago, I read the story of my Grandma Carrie's wedding and early marriage. Today, I'll be reading about her younger years as written by her daughter, my Aunt Hazel Thompson. Mary Etta Goble Carey. Mary's mother passed away when she was only five years old. Seeing her mother leave for the hospital and hearing her say to her father and grandmother, please take care of the children, would always be in her memory. Mary also remembered being lifted by her father to kiss her mother as she lay in her coffin. This was an especially hard time for the Goble family, and doubly so when Bessie, the baby of nine months, passed away soon after her mother died. Mr. Goble worked in a coal mine near Scranton, Kansas, 
Sometimes it was necessary to leave Mary and Lester, who was two years younger, home alone. The burden of housework fell all too soon on his daughter. Mary stood on a wooden box at the kitchen table to wash dishes in the dish pan. Sometimes she would put the pan of water on the cook stove and then go outside to play while it heated. After a while, she would remember, go in and check the water. If it was too hot, she would go out to play again while it cooled, only to discover later it had cooled too much, and she would have to fix the fire and heat it up again. One memory of early childhood was of having whooping cough. Some people thought the best cure was to go down into the coal mine. Mary and Lester were placed into something like a large bucket and let down by a rope. As they went down, 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 they watched the opening of the mine get smaller and smaller, until it seemed there was only a speck of light. It was very frightening, a very frightening experience and did not cure their whooping cough. They lived near the railroad, and many hobos rode the trains in those days. One day a hobo knocked on the door, and Mary answered. He asked where her parents were. She told him Pa was working in the mine. Her ma was dead, and no one was there but her and Les. Then she offered to fix him a slice of bread and sugar. The hobo stared at her for what seemed like a long time before going on down the road. When Pa came home and Mary told him about the visitor and their conversation, he became very concerned. The next time this happens, he says, you tell them your Ma is in the next room. Never, ever tell a stranger you and Les are here alone. Sometimes Mary would visit her grandparents in the Culbertsons. She enjoyed playing with Mamie and Bess, who were really her aunts, but only a few years older. Grandpa Culbertson worked for the railroad. Their house was very nice compared to the one her father owned. Mary was awed by the fact that Grandma used white linen tablecloths every day, even though she did the laundry with a tub and a washboard. Mary knew, too, that she must not ask to be excused for any reason during the course of a meal. If this was absolutely necessary, she was not allowed to return to the table to finish eating. One day while she was visiting them, Grandpa came home from a business trip, bringing Mamie and Bess each a bracelet made of seashells fastened to a gold wire. Mary thought these bracelets the most beautiful she had ever seen. Oh, how she wished for one, too. One night, when Grandpa came home, he called Mary and asked her to put her hands behind her back, close her eyes, and stand very still. While she stood there, she felt him fasten something onto her wrist. It was a bracelet exactly like Mamie's and Bess's. Mary was so happy and felt so dressed up when she wore it. She treasured the bracelet and kept it all her life. She enjoyed showing it to her daughters and telling them the story of that day when Grandpa Culbertson made her a very happy little girl. When she was seven years old, her father and his brother, Uncle John, decided to go to the Oklahoma Panhandle to see about homesteading some land. They planned to make the trip in a covered wagon. It was decided that Les could go along, but such a trip was no place for a little girl, and Pa made arrangements for Mary to live with Mrs. Anderson. Mr. Goble thought this to be a very wise decision, since Granny Anderson, as she was called, was believed to be a very kind, religious person. 
Mary was terrified at the thought of being left behind and sobbed and sobbed as the covered wagon disappeared in the distance, and she realized she really had been left with Granny Anderson. This was the beginning of what proved to be a nightmare for Mary. She slept on a trundle bed, which was made up during the day and pushed under the big bed where Granny slept. One night, she awakened to see a man's face peering into the window by her bed. She began to scream, which awakened Granny, who was furious because she could see no one. Of course, the man had had time to run away by then. Granny had a razor strap, which she used for punishment, and gave Mary a hard beating for waking her. The peeping Tom later proved to be a friend of Granny's son, who had come by for a night of drinking and card playing. The old woman taught Mary a prayer to say each night before going to bed. One night she forgot and jumped in to bed without praying. That was another time the strap came into use. Granny used a round, flat washpan for her chamber pot during the night. She placed this on a chair, and it was filled to the brim by morning. Each day, one of Mary's duties was to empty this pan in an outside toilet. If one drop was spilled, out came the strap again. How she hated and dreaded this daily chore. During this time, Mary developed a large carbuncle on her back near her shoulder blade. A carbuncle is a boil, actually a cluster of boils. That's very painful. Granny refused to treat it or help in any way. One day, Aunt Bess stopped by to see how Mary was getting along with Granny. Mary was so glad to see her. While they were visiting, she mentioned the carbuncle and how much it pained her. Aunt Bess decided she must see about this. When she saw her niece's back, not only the terrible-looking carbuncle, but also the many bruises and cuts caused by the razor, the razor strap, she said, Let's pack up your things, Mary. You're going home with me. How happy and relieved Mary was to get away from Granny Anderson and to be with Grandpa and Grandma Culbertson, Bess and Mamie. She stayed with them until her father and Les returned to Kansas. Granny's so-called religion was to make a deep impression on the child she mistreated. It was hard for her to take seriously anyone who spoke to her of God and His love. However, many years later, when Mary was in her 70s, she accepted Christ as her Savior. This happened in her home at the invitation of a visiting minister. Mary and Les attended the Fritzland School. Some of her memories were of the fun of spelldowns and of the hurry to drink from the community pail and dipper before the boy with a continually running nose took his turn. She remembered her long braids, so long she could sit on them. She was unable to comb and braid her hair herself, so she stopped at Aunt Mary's on her way to school. If Aunt Mary had time, after helping her own five daughters get ready, she would fix Mary's hair and help her to look more presentable. This became quite a bother. One day, in desperation, her father took the scissors and cut the braids off just below her ears. After that, it was much easier for Mary to care for her own hair. Ralph Carey, Mary's future husband, attended this school at the time and said later he first noticed Mary because of her beautiful braids, before Pa cut them off. Sometimes relatives, uncles or boy cousins, would come to live with them. This only made more work for Mary. How she struggled with the laundry. Those heavy suits of long underwear were impossible to lift and scrub on the washboard once they were wet, and harder yet to wring by hand. One uncle became very angry because the clothes didn't come off the line as clean as he thought they should. He threw them at Mary in disgust. 
Many times she spent the night with her cousins at Aunt Mary and Uncle Bill Goble's home. What fun they had. All six girls would get into the same bed, lying crosswise, and after talking and giggling for hours, they would finally go to sleep. Pa was a fiddler, and when Les was old enough to understand the workings of a fiddle, his father taught him how to play. They were a popular team and played for many square dances. These were usually held in someone's home. They would play many hours and sometimes were paid 25 cents for their night's work. The young people enjoyed the dances and often walked miles to attend. Many were held at the home of Ralph's parents, Ed and Libby Carey. This home consisted of two rooms. Libby allowed Ralph and his brothers to move the furniture into one room, leaving the other vacant for dancing. Sometimes Pa played a bass fiddle. He would carry this wrapped in a blanket under his arm. People teased him and called the fiddle his wife. Mary used to wonder if life would have been easier for her had Pa married again. But he never seemed interested, even though he lost his wife when they were both quite young. I'm going to read three poems from Eugene Shea. This one is called The Missing Four Pounds. Since I've quit my shirking, my diet plan is working. I've lost four pounds of ugly fat. My husband said, let's face it, I guess you've only misplaced it. Turn around, I'll show you where it's at. (laughs) And that husband is dead now. (laughs) Bird dog. Feller sold me this six-month-old pup. Some sharpie guy from out of town. Said he just needed a little training. Parents were the best bird dogs around. Figured I could train him myself. I've had a little experience in that line. I've trained two wives and four kids and a couple mothers-in-law in my time. Must have been the stupidest dog in town. Or that feller sure knew how to lie. Threw him off the roof a hundred times. Dumb thing never did learn how to fly. And one more. We'll end with this. This one won the Harry O'Neill Humor Award. It's really, yeah, well, you'll see. (laughs) Little old man in funny old clothes. As I was walking down the street, this little old man I chanced to meet, his pinky finger he held on high, pointing straight up at the sky. Little old man in funny old clothes. To what's he pointing, do you suppose? Might be pointing to some rare bird or... Maybe a plane, but none I've heard. Wouldn't be the moon, it's the opposite way. Couldn't be the stars at this time of day. I'm looking for a blimp or a weather balloon. Wouldn't be a kite, the season's too soon. Possibly he's looking for those UFOs or checking direction, the March wind blows. Maybe to his neighbor he's flipping a bird. Didn't seem likely, but not too absurd. Then the little old man is, in funny old clothes, resumed his task of picking his nose. And thanks for picking our podcast to listen to. And we're going to sign out for now. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. 
Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.